0: Uh, We don't have to do a whole lot by way of introduction tonight, unlike last week, so I'm going to dive right in. My hope is to finish right around 8.30. And so as you're going, if any questions arise, if anything deserves clarification, or if there's just something that you feel would be helpful to work out out loud, for those of you who are here present, uh, then we can do that here. Uh, If you have spouses at home or friends that are texting in questions to you, that's okay too. Uh, but I'll interact with you over any questions or comments that you might have. Those of you who are watching at home, uh, you can hang in as well, and I'll do my best to repeat any questions that are asked so that you can know what is happening in the conversation. All right. Well, listen, we're going to be talking about the content of the confession tonight. And I want to begin by just saying that essentially there are at least, there may be more, but there's at least three ways to read the Bible. One of those ways is chronologically, that we read the Bible as the story from creation to consummation. It's all true history, but it's special history. It's redemptive history. Specifically, it's God revealing to us who he is and of his will for salvation. We might call this biblical theology. That we're tracing themes throughout the Bible as they develop from creation to consummation, from the beginning to end. We saw some of those themes just this last week when I preached on the covenant of works. This idea of a priesthood, of prophet, priest, and king. Things that we traced through the history of the Bible. And so we can read it chronologically. But secondly, we could also read it ethically. If reading the Bible chronologically is asking, what is God doing Then reading the Bible ethically is essentially asking, what does God want me to do? The Bible calls us to live holy lives, and so when we read the Bible this way, we are asking essentially, what's God commanding of me? What's he demanding of us? We might call this, for instance, pastoral theology or practical theology, What are the implications of the doctrines that are contained within the Bible itself? What are the commands that I find in there? And what exactly is it that God is demanding from me? That's pastoral or practical theology. So we can read the Bible chronologically, or we can read the Bible ethically. But thirdly and finally, we can read the Bible theologically. A theological reading of the Bible is ultimately concerned with what it is that we're to believe I've told you this before, that sometimes when I'm preaching, the best application is not do this, but believe this. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about a theological reading of the Bible. It's talking about godly knowledge, the knowledge of God and of his will for salvation. And so receiving the Bible's revealed doctrines and understanding them in logical relationship to one another, that is theology, It's answering the question, what does God want me to believe? And when we consider what is a confession then, what we're ultimately considering is this third reading. That is a theological way to read the Bible. of What is it that God wants me to believe? My credo. That's what it means, I believe my creed. Well, any confession, and especially the confession that we're considering, that is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, is the result, ultimately, of a theological reading of the Bible. Now, it doesn't necessarily quote Scripture verbatim, but what it does do is summarize what the Bible teaches on any given subjects. Sometimes it may be explicit in speaking the same way the Bible speaks, but other times it may be drawing out necessary inferences. And as it infers certain doctrines from the Bible, it draws logical connections to other doctrines. And so it is drawing out those inferences and logical connections theologically. Now some might object, we're not really studying doctrine though, we're really just studying the Bible. But I hope to persuade you over the course of the coming months that we can't study the Bible without drawing theological conclusions. That is an impossible task. We can't study the Bible without doing doctrine. So the question is not whether or not we are doctrinaire people or not. The question is whether or not our doctrine is sound or not. Whether it is healthy or not. But all of us at the end of the day, when we open our Bibles, read it, aim to interpret it and apply it, are now setting ourselves to the task of theology. And a confession is ultimately that. It is a theological reading of the Bible. So a confession recognizes that truth, being theological in nature, comes ultimately before action. That's why a confession is, first of all, theological and not ethical. The truth comes before action. Doctrine informs duty. That if we fail to understand this then we are going to be severely limited and hindered in our pursuit of godliness. If we don't know who God is, then our worship will be idolatry. And if we don't understand His will for salvation, our gospel will be false. So the confession is ultimately concerned with a certain kind of knowledge It's concerned with theological knowledge, with doctrinal knowledge, of what the apostles referred to objectively as, quote, the faith. Not faith subjectively, that is the act of resting on Christ just as we've received him, that is by faith. No, it's the content of the faith, the faith that has been once for all handed down to the saints. The study of confessions then, which is really what we're doing in the coming weeks, Open a confession to study it and consider it is what has been historically referred to as symbolics. It's called symbolics because confessions symbolize the Christian faith. Now, a symbol is not the totality of a thing, it is in some miniature form a summary of a thing. So, when we talk about somebody being a symbol, right, of, of, of patriotism, a symbol of loyalty. We're not saying that that person in and of themselves embodies the totality of that thing, but it is to say to see that person is to see a summary and essence of that thing. Well, a confession is a symbol of the Christian faith, the faith that's been once for all handed down to the saints. It doesn't address everything the Bible teaches, but it does address the most essential and important things And those essential and important things are able by implication to help us think well about the things that it doesn't explicitly address. It gives us a framework for thinking theologically, for reading the Bible theologically, and for doing good doctrine. Now, some of you might object if, if you weren't here last week or haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, you might say, well, now listen, when we come to the Bible, if we're reading it theologically, aren't we imposing then our frameworks on the Bible? Aren't we supposed to just take the Bible as it is, to do our best to interpret it and then do doctrine from that? Well, I would argue just a handful of things. First of all, as I said last week, none of us are able to come to the Bible as value-free interpreters. All of us bring frameworks to the Bible. Those frameworks are either known or unknown. They're explicit or implicit. But all of us have frameworks. And those frameworks are ultimately going to be brought to bear on the Bible. So when any one of you comes to the Bible as an evangelical Bible-believing Christian who has been regenerated by the grace of God coming to believe in the one true God through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who happens to be both truly man and truly God, and yet one person, you're bringing all kinds of assumptions to the Bible. You're saying, I can understand this, first of all, because I've been given the Holy Spirit, and that there is such a person as the Holy Spirit, and that that person is the same as the one true God, equal in essence. Not only that, but I can understand this because Wherever I am in the Bible is connected to the whole Bible. It's a unity because the human authors aren't just the authors, but God is the author. Do you see what I'm saying? When we come to the Bible, any act of interpretation has with it all kinds of presuppositions, all kinds of commitments that we bring to the Bible. And so the question is, are our commitments good and sound and biblical commitments? Are our frameworks good commitments or are they bad commitments? Are we imposing things on the Bible that are not in the Bible? Or are the things that we're bringing to the Bible for faithful theological interpretation things that are in the Bible? In other words, is our doctrine come from the Bible? And then do we bring it back to the Bible to better understand the Bible? That's what a confession aims to do. It is from the Scriptures so that we might bring it back to the Scriptures and read the Bible with theological eyes. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It is to say that a confession is ultimately concerned with theological knowledge. Now, that being said, the confession is going to function in no less than three ways. Any confession does, but this confession is the same. First of all, it's going to function as a passport. That it publicly announces and summarizes that believers have certain rights and privileges. And it protects our citizenship. It is saying, in essence, we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, and this is what that means. This is how I came to become a citizen of that kingdom. This is who the king is. This is what he demands of all of his citizens. Here's all of the rights and the privileges and the freedoms that I enjoy by virtue of my citizenship. Here are the rights and obligations and responsibilities that I possess in this kingdom. And as I sojourn through this life in a land that is not ultimately my own, this is how I'm to live in light of my citizenship. That a confession aims to operate in the same way that our passports would. That when we take our passport to any other country, it lets other people know explicitly, publicly, this is who we are, where we're from, what we're about. And a confession operates in the same way. But secondly, it operates as a security guard. It's a kind of defense mechanism. That it keeps out false gospels. It keeps out false Christians by helping us to summarize sound doctrine. This is especially helpful for elders. The Apostle Paul tells Titus in Titus 1 that elders are to teach what accords with sound doctrine and are to rebuke or correct that which contradicts it. But what is sound doctrine? What kind of conclusions are we arrived to to determine whether or not something is sound? Beloved, we we do not need to be so arrogant to believe that it is left to us alone, the Bible and me with the Holy Spirit under the tree, to determine what that is. No, we are part of a millennia-old church who has been filled with the Holy Spirit, who has rightly confessed the the faith once for all handed down to the saints of who God is and of what His will is for salvation. And we want to tether ourselves to it such that we interpret the Bible with the church concerning sound doctrine. And confessions help us to do that, to keep out false gospels and false Christians for the sake of the purity of the membership of the church. Or, to use another analogy, it protects the body from doctrinal disease. But thirdly, it doesn't just function as a passport or a security guard. It functions, thirdly and finally, as a bonding agent. It unites Christians, both chronologically and geographically. It connects Christians to other Christians and to other churches in other places and at other times. It helps us answer the question, what have Christians believed? Past tense. Not just what do I believe, present tense, but what have Christians believed. Not just me and my church, but Christians around the world and Christians throughout the ages. I want you to consider how one day all those geographic and chronological differences are going to disappear when Christ appears. And how a good confession allows us in some way To enter into that reality today, that we are confessing what faithful and true Christians and churches have confessed around the world and throughout the ages until Christ returns. We are part of one church, holy, true, and Catholic. But why the confession? Ultimately, why? So we've just considered what is the confession. But now, why the confession? Specifically, why this confession? And I'm going to argue, and it'll flesh it out in the coming weeks, that what it ultimately does is it gives us a definable theological identity. It moves us from ambiguity to unambiguity. Is that a word? Well, it should be, if it's not. It moves us from ambiguity to clarity, from being implicit to being explicit. And it does so in f- at least five ways. It gives us five aspects to our theological identity. First of all, that we are orthodox. We're not making this up as we go. All we're saying in many respects is what Christians throughout the centuries have always said, confessed, and believed. In this regard, we are historic. That's why Every faithful and good confession. In the Second London Confession, along with Westminster, is no different. That the language of the ecumenical creeds are embedded in the confession. The Nicene Creed concerning God as Holy Trinity. In the Chalcedonian Creed concerning the person and nature of Jesus Christ as God's incarnate son, as well as elements of the Apostles' Creed. Really, if we distinguish the difference between A creed and a confession, it might go something like this. A creed or a credo is something that we believe. Those creeds throughout the ages have been those concerning what is absolutely necessary, confessing who God is and what it is to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. A confession takes those creeds and expands on it, makes it more explicit from the teachings of the scriptures for the sake of articulating the gospel and of organizing our life together as churches. And so it's worth distinguishing the difference between creeds and confessions. Even though they function in the same way, not every creed is a confession, but every confession should have the creeds embedded in them. And the Second London Confession is no different. That it's self-consciously saying, we're not making this up as we go. We are part of an historic faith, a century and millennia old faith. This isn't something that, like our Mormon friends, that came by virtue of a new revelation. No, it's something that is old and unchanging and has been confessed by saints across the centuries. But it's not only orthodox, it's second of all. The second London confession, that is, is covenantal, which is to say, Reformed. What we're saying, essentially, is that it gives us a definable, Reformed identity. When we first planted our church, the prevailing wisdom, and it has been for some time, the prevailing wisdom has been, you don't want to be too explicit about what you believe. You want to avoid words like Reformed, or Calvinist, or Baptist. And there's probably some wisdom to that because there's all kinds of baggage that comes along with those words, right? We could meet any particular person who tries to interact with those words or those categories. And we might say, for instance, "Mm, you keep using that word, but I don't know if it means what you say it means. And yet, at the same time, we don't do anybody any service by not... Giving truth in advertising. This is who we are. This is what we teach. Because this is what we believe the Bible to teach. And we have no problem taking as long as you need to clarify any misunderstandings or confusions concerning these things. And so, have I, since we planted our church, always been Calvinistic? Yes. Since we've planted our church, have I been reformed, broadly speaking, Yes. Have I moved from my theological convictions? Is that what has ultimately brought me and brought our elders to consider the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith? No. In reality, over the course of the last nine years, we have grown and matured in our own doctrinal understanding and of its pastoral application in our church. Our recommendation is ultimately the fruit of maturation not of moving theologically. It's moving from less explicit to more explicit, from less clear to more clear. And so it is to say that we are reformed, that is covenantal. And what we mean by covenantal is that God deals with all men by way of covenant, all men everywhere, either in Adam, according to the broken covenant of works, that's what we just considered on Sunday, or his elect... Through all time, in Christ, through the covenant of grace. Promised in the Old Testament, established in the New. That it is covenantal. But thirdly, it's predestinarian, which is essentially just to say Calvinistic. That word is to is to say that in our understanding of salvation, in the understanding of the confession, when it relates to salvation, it is setting itself against an Arminian understanding of salvation regarding the will, regarding uh, salvation, regarding man's role in salvation. It's to say that the Bible's covenant theology informs the doctrine of salvation. That all humans are totally Depraved. Not one aspect of humanity remains uncorrupted by the fall, including our wills. But rather than allow humanity to die in their sin, God unconditionally chose in eternity past to save a definite number of people for salvation. God alone knows. And it was for these that Christ willingly obeyed the covenant of redemption and laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And that through this gospel, the good news promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, God calls all men everywhere to repentance and faith in Christ and yet effectually calls His elect by His Holy Spirit so that we might respond to the gospel from regenerated hearts. That same Holy Spirit now unites us to Christ, seals us for the day of redemption, and causes us to persevere all the way to the end that we might get safely home to Jesus. All of these blessings are the merits that Jesus Christ purchased for us by the covenant of redemption and applied to us in the covenant of grace. Predestinarian or Calvinistic doctrine of salvation is ultimately rooted in the Bible's covenant theology. Fourthly, it is Puritan, which is to say that it's experimental That God appeals first to our minds and then from our minds to our hearts. It is concerned with our affections. Not merely our outward religion, but of a change of heart and of actions and of obedience that is rooted in growing love and affection for God. So that from transformed hearts, we are not only saved by God's grace, but we are assured of his love for us in Christ. That we're comforted by his sovereign grace. That we are strengthened by that very same grace to persevere. That what it does is it prioritizes God's work for us and in us ahead of our responses and of our responsibilities to God. That is Puritan or experimental Calvinism. That is what you have heard me preach in this church for nine years without knowing or having the word attached to it. This is my coming out. I'm coming out of the closet. I've just been preaching like a Puritan for nine years. Maybe not always that great, but that's been my aim, is to preach to the mind that it might get to the heart that it might change your affections, and in changing your affections might transform your hands and your feet because of the love that you have for God and your assurance of salvation in Him. That's what it means to be Puritan. We're going to see that in the outline. But fifthly, it commends a Baptist and an independent church polity following the Zavoy Congregationalists, and from their own covenant theology. The writers of the confession believed that the Presbyterians were right on most things in their confession, but that they didn't go far enough. And so what we have, after 40 years of theological reflection, from the Westminster Confession that was published in 1646 to now the London Baptist Confession of Faith, published in 1677... After 30 years of theological reflection, we have, and our particular Baptist fathers believe that they had a more mature, developed understanding of covenant theology as it related to the church and its localized manifestations of its membership, its mission, and of its ordinances. In this regard, they're following not only Westminster, but they're following the modifications made by John Owen and others in the Savoy, and then, f- and then following their convictions all the way to their consistent end of baptism. We'll consider that in just a minute. Why are all these things important? Why is a theological identity important, these five things that I've named? Number one, for the sake of the truth. We live... In a world in the West in the 22nd century, 22nd century? Boy, I just fast forward to 21st century. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've been reading too much science fiction. We live in an evangelical culture of least common denominator, doctrinally speaking. We've been persuaded over the course of decades to believe that unity is best served by finding the least common denominator theologically. What is the least that we can agree on? And there's our unity. And I want to submit to you that that has not served us well. All manner of error concerning God, concerning anthropology, what does it even mean to be a person? Made in His image? What is it to be a man or a woman? Of assaults against the gospel, whether it be word of faith or soft prosperity gospels or works salvation or lordship salvation or whatever it may be. None of these things have served us well. No, doctrinal essentialism, doctrinal minimalism has not served us well. In fact, it's not served to do anything except weaken the defenses in local churches such that all manner of error and division or error might come in to the end of division and immaturity. So we look around at our churches and we wonder, why is there so much biblical illiteracy? Why is there so much doctrinal illiteracy? And we say that out of one side of our mouth and yet out of the other side of our mouth we say, but we don't want to be too doctrinal and we don't want to be too biblical because that's too narrow and doctrine divides. Do you see the inconsistency there? I want to argue that doctrine unites. I think that's what the apostles understood. It's why they labor to teach according to sound doctrine that churches might, as Ryan preached just a handful of weeks ago, be united in sound doctrine. So it's for the sake of truth, but second, it's for the sake of cooperation. That it gives us a framework for interdenominational cooperation, of working with other churches for the gospel's sake. The original goal of the confession, the second line of confession, was to allow churches to identify with one another. To be explicit about agreements and dissensions. And knowing where they agree to cooperate together for the work of the gospel. One of the examples that I've been so thankful for is one of my pastoral mentors, Mark Dever. That though he disagrees with any number of other brothers on a host of secondary and tertiary issues... He has, unlike any other contemporary pastor I know, aimed to devote his life to uniting people that they might be together for the gospel. Think about that conference of the same name. That was the aim. We may disagree on baptism, we may disagree on the nature of spiritual gifts, we may disagree on a whole manner of secondary or tertiary issues, but when it comes to who God is and what He's done to save sinners, in His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are lockstep. And as long as you are for the gospel, then we can work together. But how do you do that if you can't define what the gospel is, who God is? what a church is, what a Christian is. In order to do that, you need a confession to summarize the Bible's teaching on these issues that you might be more equipped and more able for healthy cooperation. But thirdly, it's for the sake of Catholicity. It allows for the recognition of the orthodox nature of other congregations, even where those disagreements might exist. We disagree on a whole host of secondary and tertiary issues with the village church here in town, Denton Bible Church on the other side of town, and any other number of churches. And yet we are able to say that those churches, despite our disagreements, are true churches. They are for God and the gospel, and insofar as they're for God and for the gospel, we are for them, but not just True churches in our city and around the world, but also true churches through the ages. I said last week, so many people in our consumeristic age are mostly concerned with, what is it that makes your church so different? Why should I buy what you're selling instead of the other guy? To which we should respond in a spirit of lowercase c Catholicity, I hope what you find in our church The very same thing that Christians have confessed and believed across our city, around the world, and through the ages since the apostles. Concerning who God is, of what the gospel is, of what a human is, of what sin is, and how sinners can be saved and live godly and holy lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's for the sake of truth, for the sake of cooperation, and for the sake of Catholicity that was the longest point we're going to start picking up steam now and secondly where did the confession come from the first london confession which you should have figured out by now if this is the second london confession you say what about the first there was another there was And it was written about 40 years earlier, 1644. Seven particular Baptist congregations were growing, but attitudes toward these churches were hostile. In 1642, two years prior to the confession being published, a pamphlet appeared from one Daniel Featley. And it was concerning events in Germany under the activities of Anabaptists. And the pamphlet was describing all of the dangerous anarchy of the Anabaptists. His warning... Beware. What was done in Germany by the Anabaptists are going to happen again if Baptist theology is likely to spread. Well, particular Baptists knew that they were being misrepresented. They weren't Anabaptists at all. No, Anabaptists find their alignment more with, with Quakers and the modern Pentecostal movement, whereas we would find ourselves aligned more with a particular Baptist history. It's not the same as the Anabaptists. And so the particular Baptists knew that they were being misrepresented by Featley and others. And so they needed to demonstrate that they were actually orthodox in their beliefs. That they had no agenda besides faithfulness to God's word. And so one motivation for the first London Confession in 1644 was to distinguish themselves from the continental Anabaptists, from those who believed that according to inner light, that they could receive additional revelation from God, according to the Spirit, who were radical anarchists in many instances. There were even instances of Anabaptists running naked down the street prophesying, we are not them. But even so, even though they had tried to align themselves with the puritanical convictions of those around them, few parliamentary Presbyterians were for religious toleration, which is to say that they were anti-Baptist. And so in 1646, really 1647-48, the Westminster Confession of Faith is published. It becomes the standard for Puritan theology, the standard for Presbyterian theology. In 1658 then, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin both of whom were paedo baptist in their theology, end up meeting in a town of Savoy to consider the Westminster Confession of Faith in light of their own congregational convictions. In other words, we agree with almost everything in the confession. We just don't agree with the way that you're organizing your churches connectually to one another. We believe that every congregation is autonomous and is to exercise authority in and of itself. And so... They added an appendix to the Westminster Confession of Faith called the Platform of Polity to talk about how the church should be organized. They didn't feel that ecclesiology was so essential to be put into a confession, so they created a kind of additive. Uh, a uh, What's it called when you put something at the end of? An appendices, so to speak. Thank you, brother. Called the Savoy Declaration. Well, in 1677, the A group of scholars, of particular Baptist scholars and pastors, gathered and followed in the same stream. They took the fundamental doctrines of the First London Confession, they took the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they took the Savoy Declaration, that of the Congregationalists, and they created the Second London Confession. And so the Second London Confession is essentially the grandchild of the Westminster Confession via the Savoy Declaration. If Savoy is the child of the Westminster Confession of Faith, then the second line of confession is the grandchild. Later on, the 1689 would come to America. It'd become what's known as the Philadelphia Confession. It was printed, actually, by Benjamin Franklin. And it actually adds two additional articles to the 1689 Confession. One on congregational singing, and a second on foot washing as a third ordinance. Neither of which is in this confession. But you see now what they're trying to do. In light of the hostility that they were facing, in light of their motivations to separate themselves from radical Anabaptists and to show themselves as being largely in keeping with sound and orthodox doctrine, they aligned themselves as much as they were able, biblically speaking, with the Westminster Confession of Faith, were sympathetic to congregational polity, and were Credo-Baptists which is why the second london confession of faith is somewhere between 89% 80 to 90% identical with the westminster confession of faith especially all the way up to the end until you get to how churches are to be organized it was for the sake of unity it was to say we're with you we're not radical unorthodox Gospel deniers that are seeking to undermine the faith once for all handed down to the saints. No, we confess what you confess, though we might disagree on some secondary and tertiary issues concerning how to organize our churches. It was for the sake of unity, for Catholicity. So short history. You can get more on that and lots of other sources. This is all I'm going to be able to go in tonight, but it is just to kind of give you a little bit of the context. It was for the sake of aligning themselves with other faithful churches in spite of secondary disagreements. But what is the structure of the confession? When we open it up and we look at it, does it have a discernible structure? It can be divided, I think, essentially into four sections. Into chapters 1 through 6 would be essential, essential doctrines, Then we have evangelical, that is chapters 7 to 20. Ecclesiological, that is chapters 21 to 30. That is, what does it mean to be a Christian who walks in light of the gospel in these organized societies called churches? And then finally, in chapters 31 to 32, eschatological. If you go to the back of your handout, you're going to notice uh, an outline that I've lifted straight from James Rinehan. You can see the footnote down there at the bottom uh, Dr. Rinehan is arguably the foremost living expert on the Second London Confession, and he has been. Uh, he provides this helpful outline. Just I want to point out that my four sections essentially follow his. For essentials, he has first principles that includes the scriptures. The doctrine of God and creation. That is, these are things that Christians have always believed through the ages. But then beginning in chapter 7, we have those doctrines which are fundamentally evangelical. Specifically, that are Reformed Protestant in their nature. Concerning the covenant, the covenant servant, that is Christ and what he did to come establish a new covenant. A free will. But then I want you to notice two sections These don't follow the normal way of the ordo salutis, that is the order of salvation. It's organized a little bit differently. Why? Well, this goes back to a puritanical understanding of of doctrine. We have covenant blessings in chapters 10 through 13 that include effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. And what are true of all four of those doctrines except that that is what God in himself accomplishes through the covenant in Christ? There is no cooperation on our part. These are simply blessings that we receive by faith. God is the one that does them. But then notice in chapters 14 to 18, we have covenant graces. These are our responses to the blessings that we've received of faith and repentance and perseverance and assurance Finally, we have the means of receiving the the covenant in chapters 19 and 20, specifically the law and the gospel, side by side together. Westminster actually doesn't have chapter 20. That was added by Savoy, and it was followed by, I think wisely, by our particular Baptist forebears. Finally, I want you to notice the confession, the last third of it, is all centered around ultimately freedom and boundaries. The basis of it, chapter 21, which essentially forms the introduction to the entire section, is all about Christian liberty, and so it's ironic. Many people look at a confession this large, with so many particular details, and they assume that it's too stringent, that it's too particular, that it's too binding, but the confession itself, almost a third of it, is concerned with promoting and guarding Christian liberty. In fact, Puritans believed that every church and pastors who served those churches had two primary responsibilities to promote and guard the gospel and to promote and guard christian liberty so everything that we see that follows beginning in chapter 21 all the way through 30 concerning the christian life in the church in culture related to civil government in our families and much more is all aimed to only bind where god's word binds but then to grant to grant freedom wherever God's word grants freedom. Because here's reality. Wherever there is doctrinal ambiguity, there will almost always be the false binding of consciences. Whenever there is doctrinal ambiguity, there will always be some private confession somewhere, usually by pastors that preach or who act themselves as if, their own, as if they are themselves a living and walking confession. Wherever those doctrines are not explicitly made, you will be tyrannized by consciences being bound to things that God doesn't bind them to. It never leads to greater Christian freedom. It always leads to less. Because there's something in our own nature that longs for control, that longs for black and white, that longs for clear answers, that isn't willing to let us navigate the gray areas of life according to the Christian freedoms that are granted in God's word. Now we want to create arbitrary standards and rules that help us be sure that we're right. That is always the inclination of the human heart. The confession aims not to bind or overly bind, but to grant as much freedom as the Bible is willing to grant. So for instance, some people look at it and they say, well, it has something on there on the Sabbath. That is binding or legalistic in a way that the Bible isn't legalistic, but there's another way to look at it. It is also to say, for instance, and we'll get to the Sabbath months and months and months and months from now, after we've already done all of the legwork and foundation work to get there. But it is to say, being here in the context of Christian liberty and freedom that no pastor or church has the freedom to bind any of its members to any other day of the week, such that if you're not here on Tuesday night, verse by verse, then we will put you under the discipline of the church. It is to say you're free to come and go. You're free to not gather. You're free to act with wisdom to be here or not, and we cannot bind you where the Bible binds you. Its aim is to bind only where the Bible binds but to grant freedom wherever the Bible grants freedom. One of the things that in my own testimony that ultimately led me to embracing the confession was the recognition that the confession is principally motivated by promoting and protecting Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. And the longer that I've pastored as I've received Christians into our church, into the membership of our church, and I've talked to those who have come from other churches I've come to find that one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor is to teach and to equip the members of our church to only bind one another to what God binds them to and to grant one another freedom in everything that Christ grants freedom. Because if there's anything that churches and members in churches and even pastors, even perhaps with the best of intentions, are prone to do, it's to bind where the Bible doesn't bind. And to grant freedom where the Bible does not grant freedom. Or to limit freedom where the Bible does limit freedom. We see this now on a whole host of issues related to social justice. Related to a Christian's relationship to to the civil government. Specifically through Old Testament laws given to Israel. So what the confession is primarily concerned with is only binding where God binds and giving freedom wherever God grants freedom. Every good confession, and the second London is second to none in this regard, promotes and guards Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. So that's just a brief outline of the structure. We're going to go one by one through those over the course of many months but I just want you to see just the organic nature of it. These are not just individual doctrines all just plopped together without any kind of logical structure. It's a body of divinity that all have logical relationship to one another. Not all doctrines being equal, just like not all body parts are equally important, and yet all of it organically connected. Well, that moves us to... Our fourth point, how should we think then about subscription to a confession that is so large? There's two extremes that I want us to reject and there's a spectrum that I want us to embrace. The extremes I want us to reject on the one hand are anti-subscription, that is Biblicism on the one hand. We talked about that last week. There is no such thing as no creed but the Bible. That's a creed. Everybody has one. The question is not whether or not some people subscribe to a confession and some people don't. The question is whether or not our own confessions are public and open to public scrutiny or whether they're private and whether they're protected from public scrutiny. But everybody has them because all of us draw theological conclusions and bring theological baggage to the Bible. So we want to reject anti-subscription. That's not possible. We're all confessionals. Confessionalist in some way. Confessionalism is inevitable. But secondly, we want to reject absolute subscription. That is that we want, to con- we want to recognize that this is ultimately a man-made document. It is not inerrant. Right? We want to apply verbal, plenary inspiration to the scriptures, but not to the confession. Every single word and every single phrase has not been inspired by God such that you have to confess every jot and tittle. And so we want to reject that kind of absolute subscription. No, what I want us to embrace as a church is a spectrum between strict subscription on the one side and a subscription of unity on the other. Strict subscription on the one side essentially takes at face value the terminology of the confession. All that terminology that's used in adopting the whole confession It doesn't require the adoption of every single word or even every single phrase, but rather to every doctrine or teaching of the doctrine. It's committed to the whole body of doctrine. That's a strict subscription. A subscription of unity on the other side is only those things which are necessary for a local church to faithfully execute the keys of the kingdom. That is, that Christ is deputized every local church, given them his keys, authority, to speak on earth what is true in heaven concerning true gospels and true Christians. Whole congregations have been given this authority by Christ. And a subscription of unity is necessary insofar as that confession is able to help a local congregation best define and defend what is a true gospel And what is or is not a true Christian? And so the question is, is everything in the confession necessary for carrying out those responsibilities? The answer is surely not. Only that which pertains to who God is and of what he's done for us in Christ and of the bare essentials of how we've chosen to organize ourselves As a church beginning with believer's baptism would be essential for guarding the front door of our church. So we need a confession that are going to help us exercise the keys to the kingdom, but that are also going to help us grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so we need it to essentially help us to find true gospels and true Christians, but we also want a confession that's big enough for us to grow into. All that to say is that the Second London Confession is clear enough on God and the gospel to help a church do its job, but it is expansive enough for that church to keep on growing and maturing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so you may not understand all of it. You may not fully understand all of it. Or you may not even agree with every jot and tittle of it, but to have a subscription of unity is to say, to be a member of this church, you won't actively oppose it or undermine it. That you understand that this is what the elders are aiming to teach as we aim to be faithful to the scriptures. It's to say at least two things that in humility, number one... I know that I can still grow and that perhaps by the scriptures my own mind might be changed in time. How many of us sitting here today have at some point or another had something that we once believed to be true that the Bible taught, that we thought the Bible taught, then had our minds changed through sound biblical teaching over time? I imagine that that's most if not all of us. It's just in humility recognizing that maybe there are some things here that I don't understand as well as I think I do, and I'm willing to wait and to pray and to study and to grow and have my mind changed. But it's to say, secondly, that I am eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That I don't need to have 100% agreement, strict subscription on every aspect of every doctrine in the Confession to go, that brother or sister that I church with is for the gospel, and I am for them for the gospel's sake. That there is room for disagreement and growth, and yet not for disunity, And so, a subscription of unity is to say, I may not understand it. I don't know that I fully agree with it. I need time to consider to pray and study and think and sit under the preaching of the word and the teaching of the elders. But even as I do, I will commit myself to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace. I will not in any way actively oppose or undermine the confessional standards of this church for as long as I'm a member of it. It's a confession of unity. And those operate on a spectrum, which is to say that all members are committed at its most fundamental level to a a subscription of unity, and all elders possess a matured subscription, that is, a strict subscription, affirming the whole body of doctrine contained in the confession because they understand it to be contained in the scriptures. And there's a spectrum in between. All different kinds of members in our church will find themselves at different points of the spectrum at any given time, depending on where they are in terms of their own knowledge or maturity and many other factors. But it's to say that those who are primarily responsible for the teaching and the preaching of the word will be explicit in their subscription to our church's confession should we adopt it. But that same level of subscription would not be necessary for members. Just to say one last thing, I think there are at least three kinds of dissent from greatest to least. Three kinds of dissent that one might have to the confession. Disagreement, exceptions, and scruples. Disagreement would be a principal disagreement with a particular doctrine. We might have, brothers or sisters in our church that disagrees with the covenantal framework of the confession because perhaps they've grown up in and are persuaded by dispensationalism. The question for that brother or sister is, can you remain a member of our church, sit under the teaching of this church, and to be able to do so without feeling that your conscience is so bound... That it would be tantamount to an act of sin for you not to oppose it or undermine it. Well, if you feel that that's where you are, if you're in such opposition to the confession, well then, brother or sister, either be willing to let us persuade you otherwise, or let us help you find a church that would be more like-minded in this regard. Because one of two things is going to happen. You're going to get frustrated by us trying to bind your conscience to what you think isn't in the Bible. And then we're going to get frustrated by you constantly trying to bind our consciences. And as the elders of the church, one of these is going to move before the other. It's probably not going to be the elders. And so you need to give consideration then to those disagreements. But secondly, might be an exception. I, I agree generally with the body of, of divinity, but I don't know that I fully understand or, or fully agree with every single doctrine therein. I'm all on board, but man, I'm just, I can't really get there with, with the Christian Sabbath. I, I don't know that I'm really on board totally with a, with a threefold division of the law, and I'm still trying to think through some of that, and, and I'm willing to take exceptions to some of those things. But exceptions would be regarding whole doctrines, and then finally would be a scruple, and that would be the most minor. You say, I agree with that doctrine, but I don't know that I would phrase it in just that way. I might articulate that in a different way. So, for instance, I think that the Pope is in some way antichrist. But I don't know that I would confess as the confession does that the Pope is the antichrist. So I might have some scruples there. And I would say you might be... A little hungover from your old dispensationalism, but that's okay. (laughs) Either way, scruples are those who can go, I agree with the doctrine generally. I just might phrase it a little bit differently. So there's a whole range of ways that members in our church might end up uh, disagreeing with or taking exceptions to or having scruples with the confession, and those are welcome. And we can get to those in just a minute. Finally, answering common objections. There's four of them that I want to address. First, the confession is too big. 32 articles. Just under 200 paragraphs. Woo! That's a big confession. Are we expected to agree on all of that? Do you know there are 66 books in the Bible written by dozens of authors across several millennia and that those 66 books contain a total of 1,189 chapters and that in those chapters there are 23,145 verses in the Old Testament, 7,957 verses in the New, totaling 31,102 verses. There are 613 commands given to Israel in the Old Covenant and just over 1,000 commands. In fact, just over 1,050 commands that are given in the New Testament. Yet how are we to understand almost 2,000 commands in light of an all-holy God and relate to them in light of the free grace of Christ and the gospel? And what is this gospel except the revelation of the mystery, the plan of Almighty God from before the ages to reconcile all things to himself through his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit? And I could keep on going. That if we have... All of that, and much, 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 much more in the scriptures. And how can we say that 32 chapters, trying to summarize a body of doctrine lifted from all of that, that we might be able to best understand it and grow in it over a long period of time, is just too big. But then we need to ask, too big for what? Is it too big for exercising the keys? Yes, we don't need the whole confession for that. Is it too big for growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ over many months and years? No, I would argue it's not big enough. That we want to grow in the depths of the knowledge of the love that surpasses all knowledge, the love of Christ And so I would argue that the confession is not too big. Sometimes it feels too big in the way that, you know, some of us, my son, for instance, was playing basketball without realizing in our driveway with a women's basketball. And he thought he was doing pretty well. He's almost palming the ball and doing all kinds of things with him, and all of a sudden he pulls out an old ball and says, whoa, this is, so, this is so big, and it just feels awkward and cumbersome. And I think sometimes maybe that's the way the confession is. It's not because that's not the ball he shouldn't be playing with. It's just because that's not what he's used to. He'd become accustomed to something smaller. But it doesn't mean that big is bad. It just means that over time, he needs to get used to using something bigger. And the confession may be the same way. Secondly, the confession is too Old. As I said last week, we need to resist chronological snobbery. Newer is not always better. In fact, when it comes to the faith once for all handed down to the saints, newer is never better. That's not to say that certain words and phrases can't be modernized for contemporary use, or that some work may be required by us to understand the confession in its own context but I want us to rid ourselves of the notion that old is bad. We've received an ancient faith, not a modern faith. A faith that has been once for all handed down to the saints from the apostles. No, I think the issue is not that the confession is too old. The issue is that too many of us are too modern in the way that we think about God and the gospel and of the Christian faith. Thirdly, the confession is too narrow. That is, it's too specific. And that's to which I would ask again, too narrow for what? Is it too narrow for saying whether or not a person is or is not a Christian? Of course it is. We wouldn't look at any man or woman and say, yeah, but what do you really think about the Sabbath? What do you really think about a Christian's relationship to civil magistrates? And if you don't answer the way that we think is satisfactory, well, then you're probably not a Christian. Is that what we would say? Of course not. Is it too narrow for that? Of course it is. And yet at the same time, for those who are brought to repent and believe in Christ, not because they believed in the Christian Sabbath, not because they believed in a certain view of civil government, not because they believed in a certain eschatology, not even because they have believed every aspect of Trinitarianism or anything else, It is to say that once they have come to believe, now we teach them all that Christ has commanded. And a confession is not too narrow for that. It helps us to make necessary distinctions for the sake of truth. Distinctions like, Christ's human and divine nature, between Christians and non Christians, between the church and Israel, between the law and gospel, between the Lord's day and every other day, between the state and the church, between this age and the age to come, between men and women, and I could keep on going. It's not that it's too narrow. I want to argue that often we think that it's too narrow because our doctrine for far too long has been too broad. We've been deceived in thinking that broadness, doctrinally speaking, is what's necessary for unity. Keep the front doors wide open and the back doors shut. More churches would do well to make the front door much more narrow and to leave the back doors wide open. And a good confession helps us to do that in defining what is a true gospel, who are true Christians, and what do we understand the scriptures to teach as all of us aim to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ into the fullness of maturity, moving from milk to solid food over time? Thirdly, fourthly and finally, the confession is too high. It is too academic. This may be for a number of reasons. It might be, first of all, just from insecurity. Perhaps we might dismiss something as too academic simply because I don't understand it. And we feel insecure because I've been a Christian for a long time and shouldn't I understand this by now? Well, of course, if I don't understand it by now, I can't admit that I don't. That would be embarrassing, perhaps. And so from insecurity, we want to dismiss it as overly academic when in reality, we just don't understand it. It doesn't make it overly academic. It just makes us ignorant. Not in a bad way, but it may be that we weren't taught as well as we needed to be. That maybe we're not as well read as we thought we were. Maybe we're much more modern than we, than we thought we were. It could be a whole host of reasons. But it might also be because of difficult concepts. That there are categories and language that's used in the confession that are just alien to us. That are rooted in, in historic, doctrinal, and theological logic. Like... Hypostases, subsistences, or persons in the Godhead. That's way too academic. How am I supposed to understand those things, you might say? And I want to say, it's okay that you don't understand them at first glance. But I want to argue that we've got all manner of people in our membership. We've got, we've got a member that designs artificial intelligence for cars. We've got others that, do, that write code for security. We've got others that teach history and mathematics and English and, and literature. We've got all manner of people who exercise all manner of expertise, and they're able to do it because they devoted themselves over a long period of time to learning things that they once didn't know or understand. That doesn't make it too academic. It doesn't make it unreachable. It just means that you're going to have to work a little bit. And some of us, in our instant gratification age, when it comes to sound doctrine, don't like the idea that if it wasn't downloaded as easily as an app to our phone then it's not worth the effort. I want to argue that things, just like anything else in life, that are, worth the, that are worth the most are those things that require often the most effort. And Christ has given us a local church and a confession and a Lord willing and a, and a Bible to help us do that. Finally, I want you to consider that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith was written in a context Where the literacy rate among men was 30%. Among women, it was 10%. Now, we could have further defining discussions about the nature of literacy compared to literacy today. Theirs was a literacy schooled in the classics and in logic. Ours is a literacy schooled primarily in tweets and Facebook, by movies and not books, by fiction, not nonfiction. And so it's a different kind of literacy. Though we are a high, arguably the most literate society in the history of the world, it's a different kind of literacy. And yet, nearly 90% of the women in any congregation would have been illiterate by any meaningful definition, 70% of men. And yet, a confession like this was formulated because they, un- because they had a deep and abiding conviction in the perspicuity of the Scriptures. We can know it. We can understand it. We can, by God's grace, understand their logical relationships to one another, these doctrines. And we can even write it down in a way that would be a a helpful and a faithful guide to us over many years. That it will be helpful as I sit under the preaching of my pastor and he submits himself to it, that he might preach what accords with sound doctrine and corrects that which contradicts it for the sake of my own soul. And so before we go, it's too high, it's too academic. I want you to consider that this confession is being recommended to a congregation that is arguably more literate than most congregations in the history of the church. And if that's true, what might that suggest about us and our own spiritual commitments and fervency about our own willingness to devote ourselves to growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ.